<clears throat> this is the fourth day of this June 2019 seven-day session. We'll continue reading from the teachings of 14th century Japanese Zen master Basui from a book called Modern Water, translated by Arthur Braverman. Picking up where we left off yesterday. <clears throat> A new, a new questioner, someone uh, asking of Basui. There is not one among the good teachers from ancient times up to the present who hasn't said that there is no Buddha existing outside of the mind. Though it is clear from this that all phenomena are delusion, I am not able to let go of the belief in the existence of phenomena. Is this a result of lingering habits from my mind? Now let's uh, let's clarify what's going on here. Uh, certainly, in, in in one in the conventional sense, no one can deny that there are phenomena. This is a phenomenon. Thoughts are phenomena. Feelings, emotions, tables, trees—these are all phenomena. Uh, what what? The questioner means, and what this is uh, more the sense of it in Buddhism, is is not from the relative, ordinary, conventional point of view, but from the ultimate point of view, the absolute point of view. That what awakening reveals is that all these phenomena, mental, emotional, physical, uh, everything we can think of, everything, everything is a phenomenon. Everything we can see, hear, smell, taste, touch, or imagine uh, is, is, has no substance to it, no, no enduring substance. Everything is in a, a state of, of process, of change. Uh, in that sense, it, nothing exists. This is the teaching of shunyata, no thingness, that, that things are no thing. It's nothing permanent. Everything is, in a sense, illusory. In another sense, it's not. Uh, we have to respect uh, cause and effect, that there are consequences of, of uh, ignoring that uh, phenomena have an impact. Uh, but he's speaking from the, uh, the ultimate point of view. I, I am not able to let go of the belief in the existence of phenomena. And is this a result of lingering habits and then Basui says, you are unable to dismiss lingering habits simply because you are not looking into your own nature. If you clearly penetrate this truth of seeing into your own nature, arousing the great prajna wisdom and realizing that all names and forms are illusion, you will never again have feelings of attachment to either existence or emptiness. So that's the other mistake is denying that there are phenomena. And so Buddhism has been called the middle way. It's neither uh, asserting, affirming that there are uh, phenomena in any, any ultimate sense, nor denying that there are. Realizing, he says, that all names and forms are illusion. Uh, it's just they're just uh, again uh, conventional uh, 
assignments uh, for the sake of convenience. Of course, we have names for everything uh, in order to be able to function uh, in a reasonable way in our lives. And things appear different. A, a ball is different from a bat, so we have two different words for them. Um, but the, the problem is is that seeing just this side, the the <coughs> the differentiation side, uh, means that we're we're missing half of reality, the the other aspect of it, which is the non-differentiation. That all things, although we give them different names and they appear different in their form, it's all just mind, just this one mind. Then he quotes a sutra, the Sutra on Perfect Enlightenment. When you know it as illusion, you are at that moment detached from it and have no need for any expedient means. Basui comments, if you try to remove lingering habits that come from attachment to form, not yet having seen into your own nature, you are like one in deep sleep trying to rid himself of a dream. The desire to rid oneself of it is itself a dream. The knowledge that it is a dream is also nothing but a dream. As for completely waking up from this sleep, no matter how much you seek something within a dream, you will never attain it. Again, the absolute importance of awakening from this dream of appearances. He begins, when you know it as illusion, when you have seen the formless nature of all phenomena, people, things, when you've seen that, then at that moment you are detached. <coughs> there is a kind of detachment from it. When you're in a museum and you see a holograph, you're not caught in that as a as an actual person. Let's say it's a holograph of a person or the head. What's the ones I've seen is the head of a person. Uh, you know that it's not real in a sense. It, it looks real. It can look amazingly real. But having have, knowing that it is it is a creation of light, lasers, and whatever, um, there is a uh, detachment from it. If the uh, if it were a face with a scowling expression, uh, since you know it's a holograph, you wouldn't take it personally, that scowl. But this is more or less what what awakening reveals is that nothing is to be taken as uh, ex- just simply existing. Everything is is in transition. Everything is in change. And then he quotes the Buddha, very f- famous, famous words of the Buddha. 
All karmic paths are like dreams, illusions, bubbles, and shadows. They are like a dewdrop or a flash of lightning. Thus shall you think of it. Now, having seen, having awakened to the formlessness of all things, the emptiness of all things, uh, doesn't settle the matter because we still, there is still the force of habit uh, that operates where we still uh, succumb to habitual reactions to people and things. Uh, maybe what Basui is saying that is it is through full enlightenment, then you're you're beyond that. I don't know. It's I couldn't say, but uh, this much is is sure that short of full enlightenment, these these old uh, um, tendencies, these uh, propensities, can can go on after having seen that they're empty. There's nothing to them. And yet, they have this ongoing uh, force to them. He continues with this theme. Though the mind of ordinary people is clear and one with the Buddhas and patriarchs, unable to believe it, you fail to rid yourself of attachment to form. Therefore, you transmigrate through the six realms, binding yourself and enduring pain. Suppose, for example, you are to arouse your aspiration and perform severe ascetic practices. If you desired to harmonize yourself with the path of no mind while still harboring feelings of attachment to form, it would be like starting a fire by striking a rock at the bottom of the ocean. Though it is a rock at the bottom of the ocean, if you take it, put it on land, and then strike it, you will immediately produce a flame. Though every rock is equipped with the nature of fire, so long as it is submerged in water, it cannot give rise to flames. All people are equipped with the inclination to spiritual awakening, yet without removing the feeling of attachment to all form, they cannot give rise to this awakening. And that's where meditation comes in. Uh, both sitting and moving meditation, is that uh, there is a a sense when we're when we're not caught in our thoughts. There is a sense in which everything is dreamlike, somewhat illusory. It it it, it confers detachment on the way we see ourselves and others in the world. That's the removing, even if just little by little, that's removing the feeling of attachment to form. In a, in a complete absorption 
in our practice, the breath, the koan, whatever it is, in that kind of absorption, uh, then one is free of that attachment, at least temporarily, while one is in a samadhi state. And, and therefore, uh, awakening always is preceded by samadhi, some kind of state of no, no thought, no self. Same thing. No thought is no self. Because the self, what we call the self, is just a um, jumble of thoughts and memories and associations. says, even if one were to have all the mistaken views cited here, much of which comes down to just this attachment to the appearance of things, if he were to meet a good teacher and realize his mistakes completely, and if he were to stop these thoughts and penetrate to his inherent nature as he is at that moment, he would attain the original source of the path of no mind and receive the treasure house of the true Dharma eye, the marvelous mind of Nirvana which Shakyamuni transmitted to Mahakashapa. The path of no mind, again, is a mind free and it's, it's not... Um, scored by thoughts and opinions and delusions, ideas. It may seem so remote being able to <clears throat> sustain more than a few seconds or a few minutes to sustain this uh, mind free of thoughts. But it, it, it isn't. Uh, it's, sure, hard enough uh, to reach that state, but uh, there, there are any number of ways of doing it. Athletes, uh, I believe, get it to be on familiar terms with this state of no mind. And they realize, uh, the more proficient they get, that that's how they perform at their best, no-mindedly. Musicians, uh, anything requiring uh, long practice and training, it, it's it's all... For the for the purpose of enabling us uh, to get beyond self concern, or and that means concern with technique, being able to uh, act uh, unencumbered by thoughts.
I always think of the uh, story of the great uh, German tennis player Boris Becker, who uh, who won something like six Wimbledon titles and uh, was number one in the world. And he once uh, played in, in in a match where he was uh, in the zone for several games. He just uh, was dazzling. And uh, afterward, he he won the match. And afterward, a reporter um, asked him, Boris, in those five games in the middle set, uh, you were unbelievable, unbelievable. What were you thinking at that time? You know what he said? Nichts. (laughs) Nothing. What, what our great privilege as Zen practitioners is that we don't have to rely on any particular activity of athletics or music or anything else uh, to access that state. We have the means through daily sitting uh, to little by little come to the, be able to access it at other times, even when we're not sitting. Basui finishes this paragraph, and he could then give medicine to others in response to their diseases. He could become a teacher or a leader of some kind. He could do this on a particularly far-reaching scale, because, in, because having had many diseases himself, he would remember the nature of the medicines used. That's the uh, silver lining in, in, of taking a long time to come to awakening is uh, you, you have made so many mistakes, you've covered so much ground, um, and and passed through those things, have found a way through them, that you're equipped to offer advice uh, in a way more, perhaps more skillfully than someone who has not spent all that time uh, making all those going going astray in so many different ways. Now the world honored one held out a flower with a <coughs> held out a flower with a twinkle in his eye. This is of course a, an allusion to uh, the, the Buddha on Vulture Peak uh, holding up a flower and only Mahakashapa smiled and he transmitted the Dharma to him. What was the reason for this? When Mahakashapa's face broke into a smile, The world-honored one said, I have the treasure house of the true Dharma eye, the marvelous mind of nirvana. This I pass on to Mahakashapa. Well, all of you, according to your own attainments, what would you call the treasure house of the true Dharma eye? What would you point to as the marvelous mind of nirvana? If you still do not understand, 
Stop saying you have no doubts about the Dharma. Carefully step back and look within and penetrate into your own selves. What is this treasure house of the true Dharma I, this marvelous mind of nirvana that everyone possesses? And then he comes forth with a warning that many, many uh, Zen teachers uh, have to uh, talk about. He says, there are those for whom all phenomena totally dissolve. The mind becomes suddenly clear. Division between inner and outer no longer exists. Everything dissolves perfectly, leaving no borders and all the worlds in the ten directions are like one round, bright jewel with no flaws or shadows. This is, is a, a state of non-differentiation, a state of, of, uh, of emptiness. When this world they perceive appears before them, they clap their hands, put on a big grin, and believe they have had a great satori. This is not seeing into their inherent nature. It is no more than an instance when the Dharma nature appears. Just a, just a little glimpse of what is beyond appearances, the world of this and that, name and form. It's very very easy to deceive oneself when you get into this state because it is so exhilarating to see what is beyond all differences. But, but then, if it's, if it's not the real thing, it passes. And one comes back to earth with a big thump. Continues, Buddha nature, the self of all beings, is the simple truth as it is. It transcends sects and rules. Even the Buddhas of the three worlds, past, present, and future, can't explain it. The commentaries on the treasury of the teachings discussed during the lifetime of Shakyamuni Buddha can't catch hold of it either. It's beyond words. It can only be understood through direct experience. Buddha nature simply means the nature of all things, which is to become enlightened.
who already have this originally enlightened nature, and that means, of course, if you already have it, then you are capable of awakening to it. Its full function has no equal. The speed of a flint spark can't compare with it. Lightning can't even penetrate it. Its activity has no fixed direction. Thinking it is rising in the east, it sinks in the west. Thinking it is rising in the south, it sinks in the north. It makes thunder roar in clear, fine weather, and flames arise at the bottom of the sea. In other words, inconceivable, incomprehensible, beyond anything we can grasp with this ordinary discriminating mind of ours. This vaunted intellect that we can become so proud of, beyond it, He goes on with this ode to the, our, our true nature. It is the master of seeing, hearing, and perceiving, and the master that raises the hands and propels the legs. From the Buddhas and patriarchs down to insects, of all things that possess essential nature, who would not receive its favor? What of you people? Do you know yourselves? When you question sufficiently, your enlightenment will be sufficient. When you have true aspiration, even if you don't want to question, your whole body will be filled with questioning. Even if you don't seek expedient practices, your mind will not busy itself with miscellany. Though you don't want to eliminate them, you will be rid of the 10,000 things, that is, all things, nothing impedes one. Though you don't choose to discard them, reading sutras and commentaries and all kinds of activities will naturally be eliminated. I think of uh, this uh, with memories of coming out of Sashin and, and uh, along many years ago, and I've learned better since, but uh, reading something, doesn't matter what it is, just reading anything, can be a, a Buddhist sutra, and it's just pathetic compared to how bright our minds are, how open and clear the mind is after Sashin. And then you look at these little scribbles of ink on paper. What the? Profit and loss, good and bad, all will be obliterated. Like one who is stricken with a severe illness and is about to die, whose mind doesn't distinguish friends from enemies, when you travel, you will forget you are walking. When you are eating, you will be unaware of the taste. When you are sitting, you will forget you are sitting. Forgetting your body, you will not lie down. If in this way you become a part of this questioning, this doubt mass, 
in a short time you will inevitably experience great enlightenment. You know, a question that comes up every session, uh, I suppose, uh, is um, when when I'm really concentrated on my practice, the koan or the breath, uh, there are kind of two ways I can I can do that. One one way is where I get so focused that I lose awareness of what's around me. I don't hear the sounds, or uh, and say in, in the zendo. That's one way. Another is where I become acutely aware of even the slightest sound. The 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 uh, sense world just lights up. Um, becomes so so sharp and clear, uh, which is the better way? And uh, what I tell people is that there is no better way. That sometimes uh, we can lose with with strong concentration. We can lose uh, awareness. The senses can sort of close down. The the image that's used in one of the old texts is it's like entering. Uh, a cow's horn, it's everything closing in, in this intense focus on, say, Mu. And other times, even in doing that, even in having that intense concentration, uh, you can feel like uh, everything is wide awake, vivid, clear, sounds, smells, feelings, Here he's talking about the, the one where one uh, loses touch with the senses. The, the important thing is not to be uh, thinking there, not to be thinking there's a certain effect that you want to create. That's that would be the big mistake. Just want to be completely single-mindedly absorbed in whatever our practice is, and then let the effect be what it will. We can't be single-mindedly focused on it and have part of the mind thinking whether whether we're having the right effect on it. And then he continues, if you want enlightenment, abandon to its depths all ordinary attachment to deeds and behavior, principles and obligations, opinions and interpretations, everything, all ideas. He's not saying that we discard these permanently. It's just in that and to be, reach this state of, of complete absorption, there can't be those things still hanging in the mind. Principles. It's, so many people uh, think that principles uh, are kind of the ultimate. Oh, he has strong principles. But these two can become attachments. Principles are ideas. If we 
if we live in accordance with the precepts, if we can develop ourselves where what we're doing is not causing harm, we don't need principles. We've embodied that. Forget principles. Be as before the birth of your mother and father, separate from all external phenomena, neither sinking into internal quiet nor settling in the void. Look directly. Now, as you are listening, tell me, what is it that listens? Then he quotes the great Rinzai, Lin Chi. This physical body of yours, composed of the four great elements, can't hear the Dharma. Your spleen, stomach, liver, and gallbladder can't hear the Dharma. The empty sky can't hear the Dharma. Then what does hear it? Just let go from the overhanging cliff and investigate thoroughly. And the next questioner asks, I hear that all the successive ancestors point directly to people's minds, causing them to look into their inherent nature and attain enlightenment. I also hear that looking at oneself is as intense as hatred for an enemy. What is the meaning of this? Uh, Basui. In the self, there are the true and the false. The conscious mind is the false. Buddha nature is the true. Now let's uh, just back up here. He uh, keeps referring to the conscious mind and... I'm all but certain this is his translation of what we would usually call the discriminating mind, the mind that divides, that analyzes, that judges, the, the mind centered in the, in the frontal cortex, the mind that, that separates self from other, us from them. I don't remember in any other translated text seeing it referred to as the conscious mind. Uh, There is some fascinating research done uh, suggesting that that what we call the conscious mind is, uh, what we ourselves call the conscious mind is uh, something of an illusion. Uh, But Let's, let's, I'm going to render it each time he says the conscious mind, I'm going to say, uh, the, I don't know, conceptual mind. Let's make it that. Again, the conceptual mind is the false. Buddha nature is the true. 
When you awaken to your true nature, you cut off the roots of the wheel of transmigration, manifest your many inherent virtues, and make contact with others, bringing benefit to their lives. This is seeing into your inherent nature and attaining enlightenment. The root of life and death is the conceptual mind. Beginning practitioners mistakenly take things like the emission of light and the performance of miracles, which are really the roots of ignorance, for the clear expression of Buddha nature. An ancient said, Students of the way don't realize the truth because they dwell on the conceptual mind of the past. The seed of birth and death through endless eons is what fools call the true original self. And notice he's talking here about these, what we might also call makyo, emissions of light and, and uh, well, performance of miracles, that wouldn't be makyo. But he just dismisses them as the roots of ignorance. Another way to understand the conscious, the conscious mind or the conceptual mind is, is that which um, creates the illusion of a separate self. He says, this conceptual mind is the boss of notorious robbers. Robbers is a, it's a, it's a uh, common uh, analogy in, uh, in Buddhist texts, uh, robbing us of our full potential by being attached to self and other. The conceptual mind is the boss of notorious robbers, the origin of the ten evil deeds, and the pit of knowledge based on attachment to form. If it is not destroyed, though you were to speak wonderful words of the miraculous, they would all be no more than strange spirits of wild foxes. In the end, you wouldn't be able to avoid floating in the world of rebirth. That's why its destruction is connected with the one great matter. The reason for rebirth through the six realms of existence, from the beginningless beginning to the present, tossing and turning in great pain, is that you can't turn off this conceptual mind. The tree of swords and the mountain of blades, these are images, <coughs> in popular Buddhism images of hellish states. The tree of swords and the mountain of blades are born of it. The boiling kiln and burning coal come from it also. The demons and devils, too, come from nowhere else. The beast with hair and horns is no other than a product of this conceptual mind. <coughs> Though there are new heads and different faces, some dying here and some being reborn there, though there may be retribution from various results of causes, some becoming beautiful and some becoming ugly, all are a result of nothing other than this conceptual mind. Though it is said never to have form, it is like fire which kindles flame in firewood when the proper contact is made. If this contact no longer exists, 
quiet sets in. When it moves, it is like clouds and mist appearing. When it is under control, it is like the clear blue sky. When it is under control. So when he refers to destroying this conceptual mind, of course he doesn't mean like having a lobotomy. He means seeing what is beyond it, seeing its limitations, seeing it as a tool that we can use and must use often, a tool that we must use but but must not be used by it. Uh, discrimination has acquired this pejorative meaning and, it, uh, and at times it, it, it makes sense, but discrimination in itself is just a natural function of, of the human mind. We have to discriminate. We have to dis- when we Getting dressed, we have to know whether not to put on a down coat going out into the summer or when we're at approaching an intersection with a traffic light, we have to discriminate between red, yellow, and green. So discrimination has its place. But it has severe limits and a, and a, terribly restrictive effect when uh, we see only from the point of view of discrimination differences. He continues, as long as practitioners of the way haven't seen through their discriminating minds All their activities and words are the deeds of karmic consciousness. They are not in accord with the way. Whether they are bright or dull, knowledgeable or ignorant, thoughtful or thoughtless, with or without desires, whether they use expedient means or study the direct teachings, whether they are venerated or held in contempt, whether they perform miracles and have feelings of love and pity, these are, after all, activities of the conscious mind. In other words, still grounded in ego, in, in separation, duality. One last paragraph. When it is cold, all heaven and earth are cold. When it is hot, all heaven and earth are hot. When there is justice, everything is just. When there is evil, everything is evil. When you stop the movement of the the conceptual mind and realize the way of no mind, whether you practice rightly or wrongly, speak or remain silent, are active or quiet, the I is never there. All is the turning of the right Dharma wheel. From the outset, there has never been evil and good with regard to the Dharma. Evil and good simply exist when you're trying to destroy the conceptual mind and you still haven't done so. 
If you clearly eliminate the drunken mind, drunken rages will instantly stop and mind and body will be calm and quiet. If you want to recover completely from your illness, then stay free when sitting, lying down, and when doing walking meditation, and don't rely on another's power. Just stop your wandering. Look penetratingly into your inherent nature, and concentrating your spiritual energy, sit in Zazen and break through to the self. Then you will, for the first time, attain liberation. If you simply try to stop the movement of consciousness and consider this enlightenment, it will be like searching for a fish, considering it a jewel, or searching after a robber and treating him as your child. This will put an iron wall between you and enlightenment. It will be a hateful traitor damaging the Dharma treasure. This, uh, if you simply try to stop the movement of consciousness, um, well, that is not what we're doing in Zazen, trying to stop the movement of consciousness. Uh, the, the brain goes on functioning in whatever state we are. Um, it's, it's simply a matter of not getting caught in it, not trafficking in it. but seeing what is beyond this ordinary mind. All right, we'll stop and recite the four vows. Thank you.